Hello, and welcome to the Retirement Repair Shop, brought to you by Realized. I'm your host, Mary Beth Franklin. This podcast series focuses on retirement challenges and how to get finances back on track. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, Social Security. And with me to explain some of the nuances of Social Security rules and the role that Social Security plays in an overall retirement income plan is Joe L. Sasser. Joe is president of Covisum, a financial software company that focuses on optimizing Social Security claiming strategies and also developing tax-efficient retirement income plans. But first, let's address the elephant in the room. Will Social Security be there for future generations of retirees? Political squabbling and alarmist headlines about the Social Security Trust Funds being exhausted by 2034 are undermining public faith in the nation's bedrock retirement system. That fear is tempting some people to grab Social Security benefits as soon as they can. Joe, welcome to the program. And tell me, how can financial advisors create retirement income plans for their clients, given the uncertain future of Social Security? Well, Mary Beth, thanks so much for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to chat. You know, it's it's a challenge, and it's it's a big challenge because there is so much media attention. You know, the, the alarmist headline, for example, what you see is Social Security will now be broke in 2034. One year sooner, Social Security will be broke. You don't hear the second part, uh, which is that even when the trust fund goes to zero the typical retiree will still see 76 cents on the benefit dollar, uh, depending on whether you think of OASI, the Old Agent Survivors Fund by itself, or the combined OAS and DI uh, disability income uh, funds together. So people hear the alarmist headlines and the temptation there, of course, is I got to get my money while it's there. If it's going to be gone, I got to get it now. And that's a real challenge for advisors. Let's stop there for one minute. Um, yes, there are some people saying, oh, no, Social Security is going broke. I'd better grab it now. Go back to your first point of the trust funds being exhausted in 2034, as currently predicted, does not mean that Social Security is bankrupt. What does it mean? Right. It means at that point, if and I'm assuming here that they're going to go ahead and blend the retirement and disability funds because they've done that multiple times in the past. Now, technically it takes congressional action to blend those. So if we look only at the retirement trust fund, the date is 2033 and it's 76 cents on every promised benefit dollar that would then be able to be paid out at that time. Those 76 cents on every dollar of promised benefits, where does that money come from? That's coming from then current tax revenue. So that's an important point. Even if the trust funds, the excess reserves are exhausted, there is enough money coming from ongoing FICA tax revenues to pay approximately three quarters of promised benefits. But frankly, nobody's going to be satisfied with three quarters of promised benefits. So continue your thought. <laughs> Spot on. Well, so the fact that there's so much media out there on this topic, and frankly, when we get another social security trustees report, there is a real possibility that we'll see that inch up by yet another year. We just saw a projected 
cost of living adjustment of around 3%. And yet the, the reality was we got a 5.9%, which that immediately jumps the program expenditures across the board, because that's every single retiree currently on the rolls and everybody on disability on the rolls just got 3% greater bump than what was anticipated in the most recent trustees report. That's one of many potential factors that could cause a year greater. So, so we'll have a loud media, which means that you're going to have a lot of people who are looking all around, asking their advisors, they're reading, they're, they're saying, what should I do? And that's both, both an opportunity for advisors who are paying attention, uh, as well as a threat to those retirements that are that are unadvised or ill-advised. Well, let's talk about the role of the advisor. How does an advisor put this social security uncertainty into the context for his clients? And Kavisum has a new tool to help advisors uh, show their clients what that might mean on a personal level. Tell us about that. Well, sure. I think the very first thing is to talk about the entire headline, not just the first part, not social security is going broke, but Social Security does have funding challenges, number one. Number two, even under those funding challenges, it's not like the benefit goes away. Instead, you would continue to see about three quarters of your benefit continue to be paid. So once you've had that conversation, then the question is, what does that mean to you? Because for some retirees, that's going to have a much more significant impact on their lifestyle. So demonstrating, understanding first, and then demonstrating what kind of an impact would it have on you if we experienced the bad case? Now, the reality is we are highly unlikely to experience that kind of bad case. In the 11th hour, there will likely be some compromise, and yet we can't count on it, right? So we should plan for today, plan for the rules as they exist, but stress test against that bad case. And for most people, what they'll find is, yeah, it will impact my lifestyle, but it will not be the end of the world. And Frankly, even if though that really bad case materializes where Congress just can't agree, and all of a sudden my, my check gets cut by 25%, for most people, the answer still is not claim early. It's still follow some of the more traditional social security strategies that involve delay of at least one member of a household. Right. In fact, I've said to many audiences, grabbing social security benefits early out of fear is not a good strategy. If, if you need the money, fine, that's a, that's a different reason. Go ahead and take it. But the idea of grabbing it as soon as possible because you're worried it might be cut later is a bit like selling your stock portfolio in a down market. The only thing you have just guaranteed is you have locked in a loss. And in the worst case scenario, you've claimed at 62 and you've already cut your benefits by 25 to 32 percent depending on your full retirement age and then the unthinkable happens that congress doesn't come to some funding agreement next decade and benefits are cut further well you've just taken a second haircut that doesn't seem like a wise decision but at covisum you offer your member advisors a tool that helps them calculate the actual impact tell us how that calculator works yeah, absolutely. There's a consumer version of the calculator, which is very, very simple. It's on our website. It's free for anyone, including consumers, to access. Um, if you just Google Social Security, Kobe, some benefit cuts, you're going to get it. And really, that one just shows a table of what the total present value of benefits received to a variety of different death ages in five-year increments. So what most people will see is that 
just assuming average life expectancy, even under a benefit cut scenario, they'll be better off by delaying benefits. And that's, that's the simple calculator. Now, the advisor version of the calculator allows you to input any date. So for example, if you wanna operate off the 2033 or the 2034, if you wanna operate off of the uh, 24 or the 22% benefit cut, once you get really nerdy on this stuff, you might have some preferences. Uh, you can do any of those things, but then more importantly, you can pull that cut into an overall retirement income plan in Income Insight. You can see both the tax implications, you can see the longevity implications, you can see the impact on other assets. And so that's really what a comprehensive view at Social Security benefit cuts or changes really needs to include is not just, okay, how much do I lose? And for the average married couple, they might lose around 200K of value by virtue of experiencing the full benefit cut. And yet in the context of a retirement income plan that might be worth a total of, you know, a million and a half or $2 million of which a million of it was social security, it's not as dramatic an impact to lifestyle as you might expect. And so understanding that, demonstrating it and helping the client understand that's really the, the role of the advisor. It's preventing panic, much like you do when, when you get a unexpected dip in, in the markets. I think it was so important that you brought up um, the tax implications because so much of retirement income planning comes down to not how much you have coming in, but how much you can actually spend after taxes. And if we broaden the definition of taxes, that might include things like Medicare surcharges for high income retirees. I think that's one of the greatest shocks to new retirees of how much of their gross retirement income they lose to things like uh, income taxes and Medicare premiums. How does your software work to help advisors envision that whole picture of retirement income and that after tax, after Medicare surcharge, spendable retirement income? Yeah, that's the focus of all of our software tools is it's, it's really your life. It's the definition of your lifestyle is how much can you actually spend, not what gross is coming in to the, into the house. I find this to be a really interesting conversation because you can go out to Social Security, uh, it's actually ssa.gov slash solvency. And one of the proposals is to actually create a very similar, and it's actually based on the Medicare means tested thresholds for means testing for Social Security. And that is one of the proposals that's out there. It's been scored. Um, it would have a high impact on the solvency of the system. And so this idea of Medicare means testing or of higher income earners paying a larger share of the total Medicare premium is a concept that's actually potentially translated into Social Security as well going forward. So it's a concept that people really need to be familiar with. Same thing with the net investment income tax. Both of those came about and they're effectively popcorn taxes that apply to high income earners. You know, if, if you have saved diligently and your income producing assets produce additional income, you get kicked with the net investment income tax. And ultimately those kinds of taxes don't show up in brackets. So when you say I'm in the 12 or the 22 or the 24 or what have you, that's not necessarily accounting for each of these other taxes that get brought in. And Social Security is a great example. You know, prior to 1983, Social Security benefits were tax-free. 
Now they're taxed based on how much other income you have. If you have entirely social security benefits, you're not gonna pay a dime in federal income tax. But the minute you start to add in IRA withdrawals or capital gains, uh, even municipal bond income, your social security potentially becomes taxable as ordinary income. And so understanding those interactions is what we've been all about from day one, because one extra dollar of withdrawal from an account doesn't necessarily equal one extra taxable dollar uh, as far as what goes into the bracket. And you can see rates as high as just under 50% uh, for someone who looks like they're in a 12% bracket. The top of their brand name tax return would tell them they're in a 12% bracket. And yet they could have lost 50 cents on the dollar on their last withdrawal from an IRA. And that taxable situation is exacerbated when one spouse dies, right? Because as a married couple, you have these higher thresholds for joint income. But when you're suddenly uh, a widow, a widower filing as a single taxpayer, those income thresholds that trigger things like uh, taxes on social security benefits or a high income surcharge on Medicare premiums drop in half almost. And it's a very different after-tax picture for those people. Oh, it absolutely is. Understanding what kind of assets a survivor might have uh, in order to meet their retirement income need and what kind of tax flexibility they might have is, is a really important part of planning. Speaking of tax flexibility, for the last couple of years, there's been this drumbeat of now is the time to consider a Roth IRA conversion for at least some of your traditional retirement accounts because we know tax brackets are going to increase sometime in the future. Just the way a current tax law is written, the current low rates are due to expire at the end of 2025. There was talk over the last year in Congress of raising uh, income on higher earners. That didn't happen, but is there still a momentum now to convert some retirement assets to Roths to avoid an uh, inevitable tax increase in the future? To be frank, I don't think we have to have a tax increase in the future to make Roth conversions valuable now. We did a lot of Roth conversions uh, for the last several years in our own financial planning practice for our clients. Um, and the big reason is because when you start with a social security strategy, you're almost always delaying at least one member of the household's benefits which clears out this window where you have ultimate tax flexibility. And what we often find is that most people who have saved well have, have really oversaved into 401ks and IRAs, pre-tax dollars. And what'll happen to them when they hit 72 is they'll have more coming in than they actually need to live the lifestyle they wanna live. And since our entire practice is focused on this idea of after-tax money, what we really wanna do is accelerate some of those withdrawals, either just by living off of IRA money sooner than we have to, to bring down the eventual IRA balance, or do Roth conversions while living off non-qualified money in order to reduce those future RMDs. Really, the question isn't just about the environment, it's about the individual's tax situation, both now and later in retirement. That's a very good point. And it also plays into the idea of at least one spouse delaying up until age 70 to claim social security, because if you're using those qualified IRA 401k monies early in retirement to basically buy yourself those delayed retirement credits of social security later, you're also helping reduce your future required minimum distributions so that 
when you're in your 70s and beyond, hopefully what you've done now in your 60s will reduce those future income tax premiums and also your Medicare premiums. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's the key. You, if you think about levelizing your lifetime bracket, that's really our goal here. We don't want to be in a zero now and, a, you know, a 24 later. We want to be bringing those as close to each other as we can, especially if we can find opportunities to avoid taxes on Social Security or opportunities to avoid net investment income tax later for our higher income clients or avoid Medicare premium surcharges. All of those really become a big kicker for why to levelize those brackets over time. Realize strives to put you in control of managing your investment property wealth. Their goal is to help bridge the gap between investment property ownership and sophisticated wealth management, helping you meet your income needs in retirement and pursue your investment goals across generations. Using the principles of investment property wealth management, Realize transforms individual investment properties into diversified real estate portfolios, customized based on income needs approaching retirement, risk appetite, and investment goals. By evaluating your current investment assets and determining what your long-term strategy is for wealth management, their team of advisors can create a unique investment plan for you or your clients. Visit them at www.realize1031.com slash repair shop to learn more about Realized and the tools they use to help their clients overcome retirement income challenges. You mentioned an interesting concept. We know that Medicare is um, means tested in the sense that higher income people pay more for the same services that other people get a lower rate. There is some talk among the many, many proposals of how to reform Social Security that Social Security benefits could also be means tested. In other words, higher income retirees would receive a smaller benefit than they would assume under current law. Is the, the threat of uh, means-tested Social Security, is that one reason people might want to grab their benefits earlier, thinking, let me get them while I can before they means-test them? Is that valid? I don't believe it's valid for a few reasons. Number one, Social Security is already means-tested. And what I mean by that is the benefit formula dramatically favors the lower-income worker over the higher-income worker. Behind the scenes, a lot of future proposals I mentioned, yes, there is a proposal out there for direct means testing based on benefits and potentially eliminating COLAs for people who have high income. That's another example of a means test that actually is a benefit cut for, for high wage earners. While those things are possible, I don't expect that you'll have a means test that says if you make over X, unless X is in the billions, you're not going to get a benefit. And there's no real reason to pass. You know, you think about political will, there's no, no real reason to pass, you know, a reform that says you get no benefits if you've got, a, you know, these, these ridiculously high incomes, because it's just not going to have a big impact on program solvency. And so instead, what we should really expect is some combination of tax increases. We may see some minimum benefits actually increased, particularly those for survivors. That's, that's, a real challenge for the Social Security Administration. And 
we'll likely see new taxes, uh, tax increases, as well as some benefit cuts at the very top end. You know, for example, some of the proposals to create the donut hole, uh, effectively start taxing again over $400,000. That also creates another, most of those proposals also create another bend point where uh, you get some credit, but really it's a huge losing proposition and that money is used just to shore up program finances. So do I expect higher wage earners will bear more of the costs of reform? Yes. Do I expect that we'll see a situation where if you make over certain thresholds, your benefit will be eliminated? No, I do not expect that. That's not a, and in fact, it's really not in any of the any of the proposals that are out there. I think that is such an important point because if you go back to the beginnings of Social Security in 1935 under President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the whole idea was workers would have skin in the game. They would contribute through their payroll taxes to fund a future Social Security benefit. Now, people get confused. They think that those tax dollars they have paid is going into some little private account that's going to create their own social security benefit in the future. No, that's not the way it works. It goes into a general social security fund. Today's workers are paying taxes that are funding the benefits of today's retirees. And we're dependent on younger generations of workers to be funding our benefits sometime in the future. But the point was because virtually everyone contributes to social security, it has such political clout because virtually everybody cares about it. And I think the great danger, if there was ever a proposal to say rich people don't get a benefit, even though they paid into it, I would consider that the welfareization of Social Security. And wealthier people would simply stop caring about the program if they weren't getting something out of it, and it would lose the the status it still has as the third rail of politics. Basically on Capitol Hill, the idea is touch social security and you die just like the third <laughs> rail. <laughs> but I think you also brought up a very good point that yes, inevitably there will be social security reform. But the question is, will it merely focus on shoring up the finances of the program or will it also seek to reform the program? Because face it, it was developed over 80 years ago when our economy and our social structure looked much different. What does it need to do to be more appropriate for a 21st century family? For example, survivor benefits for widows who may be living for two or three decades as a widow. Um, should those benefits be bumped up for the very old people? Uh, the idea that a widow benefit is dependent on the, the decision of the spouse is a painful idea in a social insurance program. You know, ultimately, that's an area that is ripe for reform. Right now, the rules are what they are. And unfortunately, a huge number of widows were effectively punished by uneducated claiming decisions to claim early for a higher wage earning male with a shorter life expectancy. And it's, it's truly for lack of a better word, it's unfortunate, but it, that's a real opportunity for program improvement. And, and there is enough discussion around it that I would hope that would be part of, of a reform proposal. But again, you know, there's, there are so many opportunities for reform and the nature of work is changing. I, you have people who are taking, you know, a, 
have a career, a strong career for five, 10, 15 years, and then take a two year sabbatical. How does that impact this idea that social security is based on a constant 35, 40 years of work? Proposals around that are, are gonna be, there, there are gonna be a lot of them. And sorting through all these things is gonna be a real challenge. It's not something that'll get done overnight. Well, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought up Survivor. Um, when we talked briefly earlier about social security claiming strategies, there used to be a lot more opportunities, but the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015 put the kibosh on many of those. The old idea of filing for your benefits at full retirement age to trigger a benefit for a spouse or a dependent child, and then immediately suspending your benefits and allowing them to grow by 8% a year up until age 70. Golden strategy, unfortunately, it disappeared in April 2016. I find in dealing with both advisors and consumers, unfortunately, a lot of people think that opportunity still exists. It doesn't. There is one more creative claiming strategy left, the idea of at full retirement age that I could, quote, restrict my claim to spousal benefits and collect half of my husband or wife's benefits, assuming they claim. But that depends on my birthday. I had to be born on or before January 1st, 1954 to exercise that creative claiming strategy. But the one really valuable strategy that does not depend on a birth date is survivor benefits, right? If I'm entitled to my own retirement benefit on my own work record, and I am also either a widow or widower, I may be entitled to a survivor benefit. Walk us through that. Why is it important for married couples to coordinate their claiming strategies while they're both alive and healthy for what may happen down the road. And this remains one of probably the most misunderstood parts of social security. We get questions from advisors day in and day out about it. So in a, in a, in a married couple, just think at the first death, the lower benefit goes away and the higher benefit continues. That's the easy rule to remember. And so if I'm the higher wage earner in a married couple, I might want to delay my benefit for as long as possible because at the first death, the lower benefit is going away and the higher benefit, including those delayed retirement credits, is going to continue for as long as the survivor is alive. So that's the first really important point is that you pass the delayed retirement credits on to the survivor. And if you're the survivor, well, you keep your delayed retirement credits and the smaller benefit goes away. So one of the most common strategies we're seeing right now, we call the split strategy, is just the lower wage earner claims benefits as early as possible, and the higher wage earner delays as long as possible. That gets some cash flow into the house as soon as possible. Um, you know, it, it effectively is a behavioral check. If both members of the couple are not comfortable delaying benefits all the way till 70, at least we get some cash flow now, right? So you got the behavioral check aspect, but then you've also got that that survivor benefit that will last as long as either are alive. It's the best longevity insurance you can buy. Also, what's misunderstood in that strategy and, and why it's so valuable is, let's say the wife is not working and has a retirement benefit on her own earnings record, and she'd go ahead and claim it at 62. And even though her own retirement benefits are permanently reduced because she has claimed them early, it has no impact on her survivor benefit as long as she is at least full retirement age or older at the time. 
In that case, if our husband has delayed till 70, he's gotten the biggest benefit possible, he dies first, she is still going to step up to 100% of what that late husband was receiving. So there's no downside for the married couple in that scenario, have the bigger breadwinner wait as long as possible up until age 70 to maximize both retirement benefits and potential survivor benefits, and then have the other spouse go ahead and claim early if she wants to, bring cash into the household, take away a bit of the sting of having the husband wait, and she is still assured of getting that bigger survivor benefit. Absolutely. Because of the number of creative claiming strategies that have gone away. Do you find some advisors saying, it's just not worth learning all these complicated rules. It doesn't matter anymore. And if so, what's your answer to that? Of course, you know, a lot of them were the same advisors who said social security, my clients are wealthy. They don't care about social security. And those advisors who really got involved, you know, a decade ago in understanding the file and suspend and the restricted application took a lot of clients from those advisors. Mm-hmm. So when you get down to it, what matters is what the client cares about. And clients care about social security. And the more we hear from the media about social security being broke, the the more of those alarmist headlines, the more our clients are going to want reasoned approaches to social security. And even better, if you can demonstrate a systematic process you have for evaluating the problem, such as the use of software, and a systematic way for bringing that into the context of an overall retirement income plan, you'll have thrilled clients. That's, a, that's the experience that we get from advisor after advisor um, that, that use our tools and, and frankly, really haven't stopped in the last decade. You know, we've heard so much of the great resignation over the past two years during the COVID pandemic of people for a variety of reasons, either Um, They lost their job due to the uh, pandemic. They chose not to go back to work. It seems buried in that great resignation of about 20 million people over the last few years that the great retirement is buried in that statistic. There's a lot of older workers that for a variety of reasons are deciding now is the time to retire. And from what I hear from a lot of people, when someone is considering retirement, the first question they ask is, what should I do about Social Security? Talk about this as an opportunity for advisors to engage new clients around that question. What should I do about Social Security? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is a central question for just about every retiree, save you know, maybe teachers in California. Um, but oftentimes their spouses still have those concerns. You've still got considerations for WEP and GPO, and you've got all kinds of interesting situations that people encounter with one of the biggest decisions they will make throughout the course of their retirement. And to the extent that it's an irrevocable decision, you know, really once you're outside that one year window of your initial decision, you're done. And so that really increases both the anxiety, but it also increases the importance of making the decision well. So advisors who are out there educating the public, both on what does it mean that social security is going broke? What does that really mean? Getting into both parts and then getting into some of the potential changes that are out there and getting into the idea of how does it impact your retirement income plan overall are definitely able to attract clients in in what's frankly a really tough environment. People don't wanna move when when they face stress. So education is, is absolutely a way to cut through stress 
and, and inspire people to move to good action, to action that's going to put them in a better spot. You just mentioned uh, California school teachers. Uh, there are a dozen states where public employees, including school teachers in some instances, do not pay into the social security system. Their, their wages are not subject to FICA payroll taxes. Uh, some of them may have worked long enough in the private sector, generally at least 10 years, to have earned their own social security benefit. Other cases, they're married to people who have a social security benefit. But for these public employees who have pensions based on work where they didn't pay FICA taxes, the rules are different. Can you go over a little bit about these offsets and what advisors need to know about this? Sure. You know, the biggest thing for advisors to understand is that if somebody has really low earnings history on their social security statement, but you know they've got a big pension or they've worked a lot more than what's showing up, then you got to dig deeper there because it is going to impact their social security benefit. Uh, the WEP, the windfall elimination provision is where when you have income that you did not pay social security taxes on, and you also have a social security benefit, your social security benefit is not the amount that's on the statement. It's reduced to somewhere between 40%, depending on how low your earnings are, all the way up to potentially you can get the full social security benefit if you had 30 years of covered earnings over certain thresholds. It's called the substantial earnings threshold. And so being able to quickly address those is really, that, that's where software type tools really do shine because you're not going to do that stuff manually. Now, the government pension offset is a situation where you lose uh, basically two thirds of your social security benefit to survivor or spousal benefit by virtue of having your own pension uh, from non-covered employment. And so both of those situations are really situations where you wanna either use software or seek out an expert. Uh, there are a variety of, of people who are consultants to advisors if you're not a software type, uh, that it does make sense to approach with those cases because a layman is not gonna handle them well. Right, the, I always tell people the shorthand is Windfall elimination, WEP, think windfall worker. If you have a non-covered public pension and you also have your own social security benefit, you'll get some, but probably not all of that promised social security benefit. The other one that affects spouses and survivor benefits, government pension offset, GPO, grumpy partner you're probably not going to get anything as far as a spousal benefit or a survivor benefit if your government pension is too big. And I say to couples in that situation, married couples where normally we would say to one spouse, the higher earning spouse should delay till 70 with the idea of maximizing a potential survivor benefit, I usually say to married couples where one of them's a public employee subject to these offset, don't have the private sector person delay because you're creating a larger survivor benefit that your partner may never get. So in that case, go ahead and claim it at your full retirement age. Okay. Going back and talking about uh, potential social security reforms, I, I sort of chuckle because I hear from public employees every week about, I hear there's a proposal in Congress to repeal the WEP and GPO offset provisions. And I say yes. And there has been a proposal introduced every year since this role was put into effect in 1983. 
and it hasn't happened yet. So don't hold your breath. But I think there are a lot of other potential changes that will come through Social Security reform. And if history is any guide, Congress very seldom does things retroactively. It tends to protect current and near retirees. And the bigger changes, with any luck, will be phased in over many years or potentially many decades. For example, the 1983 Social Security reform, the last time we had major reform, um, one of the things in that piece of legislation was gradually raising the full retirement age from what was then 65 to what will ultimately be 67. And that legislation that's nearly 40 years old is not fully implemented yet because that last piece, 67 as a full retirement age does not fully kick in until 2027. Joe, what do you think are some of the big trends we might see in social security reform as far as uh, maybe a higher retirement age or uh, taxes on benefits? What do you think might happen? Surprisingly, I think a higher retirement age might be a challenge. And the reason is there are so many people who physically, particularly in the physical labor jobs, unless there's simultaneously a revisioning of how the disability program works, um, you know, and potentially physical labor past 67, 68, 69 starts to become a real challenge. So if there's a revisioning between the two, then maybe we do continue to see higher uh, full retirement ages. You know, delayed retirement credits used to be earned until age 72 prior to the 83 legislation. Um, so we could see a whole reorganization of those scales. It's likely that we will see some benefit cuts at the high end, either by virtue of new benefit formulas that are certainly going to be phased in over time, or by changes in cost of living adjustments, or by changes in in taxes, because taxes are much more likely to impact the higher earner than they are the lower earner. Um, it's likely that we'll also see some benefits raised, like we talked about earlier, potentially survivor benefits or, or an alternative minimum to make sure some groups of people are not left out. Um, those kinds of changes, I think, will happen. The ones that are, that are certain, though, we will see some form of tax change. I, I think that's pretty much a certainty. The only question is what forms it takes. Does it take just payroll tax? Does it, is it a tax on benefits? Is it a tax on other income like net investment income tax? And whether or not in the near term to bridge a gap as these changes are phased in, whether we see uh, reimbursements from general revenue, which is a real possibility. And, and that's something they've tried hard to avoid in the past. But bottom line, Social Security will be there for future generations of retirees. I think that is absolutely fair to say uh, the change, the formal change a little bit as it has over the years. And as it changes, the role of the advisor is going to be really critical in helping people understand what those changes mean to their individual circumstances. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end this conversation. Joel Sasser, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me and our listeners of the Retirement Repair Shop, all about Social Security. And thanks to our sponsor, Realized. Oh.